I've had this episode on calendars in my mind for a while now. Calendars are very useful, of course. I was going to include it on the last episode on telescopes and microscopes, with calendars being so reliant on astronomy to get so accurate, it didn't feel like it deserved an episode of its own, however. And it didn't really flow with the previous episode, so I decided to do a little bonus podcast. If you're wondering why it's been longer than normal for a podcast to come out, it's because I've been working on something else. You should see a trailer episode in your feed for a mini podcast series I've done called The Monetary Revolution. I won't spoil it, but it's worth a listen. It's all about money and the future of money. It's on a separate feed, but you should be able to find it easily. So calendars. Calendars are vital for us. They can tell us all manner of things otherwise impossible to predict accurately. Perhaps calendars could be described as the first ever scientific instrument conceived by man. The calendar, at its root, allows humans to accurately predict the seasons, years and solstices, full moons and to mark events. It gives humans a sense of perspective when it comes to time, which can be hard otherwise. Have you ever got that feeling you can't quite work out what time it is, or can't quite remember what day of the week it is? Or do you get that feeling that days have been moving more slowly towards a weekend, or that your life is moving in a blink of an eye? Well, that's natural. Time is relative. And to humans, time is very relative. Humans, therefore, need tools and mechanisms to be able to accurately tell the time. Imagine all those years ago, before the calendar, when you literally had no idea what time of year it was, never mind what day of the week it was. Not only would you feel like life was meandering and very unstructured, as you bounced around through the different seasons, with only a vague awareness of what time of year it was, but you would also be unable to record and monitor time. As humans moved towards farming communities in the Neolithic era, we started to work out the best time to plant different types of crops, and we started to work out how much time we needed to survive the winter. All around the world, there have been many different calendars. But there is one universally recognised calendar. This universality was precipitated by Mao Zedong declaring on the 1st of October 1949 that China too would follow the Gregorian calendar. Despite this calendar originating thousands of years ago with numerous additions, renamings and corrections, its antecedents go back to the earliest of civilization. It is a living and breathing collective of humanity mastering time and of the earliest mathematics needed, which was used to record time. The calendar is a tool to try and help predict future events. By using scientific observation into the relation between the different celestial bodies and their relationship to Earth, we worked out an accurate calendar. But to get it as accurate as it is today, 
it took thousands of years. You can imagine the heartbreak of early civilizations that missed out on the right time to plant their harvests, or which foods to plant and when. It was literally a matter of life and death. Therefore, it was the ambition of astronomers, mathematicians, priests, kings, and so subsequently, the rest of civilization to be able to produce an accurate calendar. The calendar may have been the first ever large-scale scientific endeavour to produce genuine results. All those observatories from Babylon to Arabia to London to South America all were created to get an accurate calendar. A wide range of people from throughout eras collaborated together to get the best and most accurate calendar possible. Constant adjustments and readjustments, which even today still goes on. From the earliest lunar calendars 30,000 years ago to the modern reliance on atomic time. The human calendar is the story of human intuition. The calendar is a wonderful invention. Constantly butchered and altered, control of the calendar represents political power and authority. From early Bedouin calendars, the rise of Islam saw new calendars too. With the French Revolution, a new revolutionary calendar was launched too, which, like everything the French made, had a grand theory of making the calendar metric. Yet, you'll be surprised to hear it didn't take off too well when they decided to make weeks 10 days long, but only keep two days for a weekend. The Gregorian calendar is very much anti-metric. It doesn't have smooth edges. It's rough and dirty, having been passed down from civilization to civilization. Over time, it has changed when its inaccuracies were realized. It randomly has 30 days and then 31 days, but then 28 days in February. Then we have leap years. How did this all start? Well, it starts about what we've talked about before, the sexagesimal or base 60 Babylonian system, with the number system based on the number 12, with divisions of that not the number 10 as we see in the decimalization in France. Our measurements of time is basically the last piece of imperial measurements still used in the world. 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, 30 days in a year, 12 months in a year. It can actually be quite difficult to get your head around all these different things. But the calendar, in its totality, represents the varied, wide nature of all human history, with all its messiness and lack of logic. Yet the most important thing remains true. The Gregorian calendar building upon thousands of years of human maths, observations and reasoning, is the greatest calendar mankind has yet created. Around seven centuries ago, one of the greatest academics of the day, an English friar called Roger Bacon, tried to prove to Pope Clementine IV that time was wrong. A miscalculation in the calendar 
was causing the calendar to be an extra 11 minutes longer than the solar year. This meant there had been an extra day every 125 years or so since its inception. And according to Bacon, it had led to a shift of around nine days. March would soon be winter, and August would be spring. For the papal authorities, this could have been a worrying idea. They could have been seen as misinforming the population about the dates of the most important ceremonies, Easter and Christmas. One of the greatest sources of political power is the ability to set dates for the great ceremonies of the people. If their calendar was seen to be incorrect, as news might spread across Europe of its inaccuracies, it could threaten the political power of the Catholic Church itself. I mean, it might sound trivial, but if time is off by nine days, then it starts to affect things like harvests and predicting seasons. The notion that the Catholic Church might have been wrong could be considered immediately heretical, but Bacon had since, fleeing general apathy from his ideas in England, moved to Paris, where his work had found favour. He traced the original problem back to Julius Caesar. Just as Bacon was about to testify to the Pope, the problem with electing very old men to the positions of high authority for life is that they tend to die. Clement IV was the same, and died on the 29th of November, 1268. Gregory X, or as I think he should be called, Gregory X, which makes him sound like an X-Men, seemed to have no interest in the calendar problem. Bacon continued to speak his mind about the problem, and in 1272 hit out at the academic community of the day. Along with a group of other friars and monks, he also began to talk about the church's wealth and its straying from trying to follow the mission of God. In 1277, to nobody's surprise, Bacon was made a heretic, with it now illegal to read any of his work. The reaction from the Catholic Church was predictable. At first they ignored the problem, and then banned talk of it. The calendar, as an invention, is just a scientific instrument, the result of thousands of years of study to measure and interpret time itself. The knowledge and control of the calendar was an important function of political power, as you could now instruct the people when the festivals and the seasons would come and go. It's no surprise Bacon was made an outsider for his challenge to a fundamental lever of political power. Political intervention and control over certain technologies has always been a problem. Technology gives people power away from the state, but technology in the hands of the state gives it tremendous power. The calendar is no different. So, if we start at the very beginning, around 13,000 years ago, man, or at least one man, or perhaps woman, was found to have notched on a cave wall a system of counting days and marking the phases of the moon. The moon was vital to human life, with ancient cultures worshipping it. Even some places today still do so. The moon was the earliest of clocks, 
with early peoples able to predict seasonal rains or harvests from its movements. For the Greeks, the moon gave them the 29 or 30 days that make up a month, with the 12 lunar months making an average of 29.5 days a month per year. This resulted in a year of 354 days. Most ancient civilizations, from Sumer to China, used the lunar method for telling the time. However, those who followed a lunar calendar found their years 11 days faster than a solar year. This problem had been worked out by the Babylonians, who were obsessed with the moon. And in around 432 BC, they worked out that 7 years of 13 solar months, followed by 12 years of 12 lunar months, would equal 19 exact solar years. This became known as the Metonic Cycle, after the astronomer Meton. By adding an extra month into the calendar, you could get very close to an accurate time. But even this Metonic calendar was too fast by a few hours. It was in Egypt who was the first civilization to truly correct the lunar method and embrace the sun. Around 6,000 years ago, the civilization living along the Nile worked out that the solar year was close to 365 days, and so it led to 12 months of 30 days, with 5 days added for the Egyptian gods in Neolithic Egypt. It's hard to know, but we can imagine the competitive advantage it gave the Egyptian people as they were the first civilization to truly work out the seasons and would have benefited by increased harvests. As we saw in the previous episode, the earliest Britons also knew of the properties of the sun, with an enormous clock that could precisely locate the moment of the summer solstice, that being Stonehenge. While the Mayans in Central America also knew of the properties of the sun. Yet it was the meeting of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra and the meeting of the two worlds at the opposite ends of the Mediterranean that led to a true change with the technological diffusion to come. A transfer of sorts between the Greeks and Egyptians had started with the general of the army, Ptolemy, under Alexander the Great, taking control of Egypt and instituting a great seat of learning and splendour at the city of Alexandria where great astronomers and mathematicians made a great deal of scientific discoveries about the sun and confirmed the accuracy of 365-day calendar year. After Caesar's ordeal with Cleopatra, he got back to Rome, whereupon he was named dictator for 10 years and launched into a series of projects like the canal across the Isthmus of Corinth and, in 46 BC, the reordering of the Roman calendar. It was a show of power and of administrative rewriting newly powerful people loved to enact. It would impact those from England to Iraq. The Romans had known and used the 12-month lunar year for centuries, 
but the calendar kept shifting. The earliest Roman calendar was known to have been founded by Romulus, and so many of the early months, like September, October, November and December, come from Romulus not being very creative and just counting. Sep for seven, oct for eight, nov coming from the Roman novum meaning nine, and december coming from the word decem to mean ten. The same root for the root of the word decimal. This calendar was never particularly accurate, and so Caesar called the great philosophers and mathematicians of the day to come back with a better system, similar to the one imposed by Ptolemy III, where a year was 365 and a quarter days. The implementation of this calendar caused mass confusion, with extra days now added onto the calendar to make up the required two months extra for the change. 46 BC lasted 445 days long. So, when somebody tells you 2020 or 2021 and the associated lockdown makes those years feel like it's lasted an age, just remind them that 46 BC did actually last a lot longer. The change also saw the month of Quintilius renamed Julius in his honour. We now call it July. Despite Rome now having the most accurate calendar in the world due to these reforms, it could still be tinkered with. When the Emperor Augustus wanted to honour Caesar, he decided the month of July, named after Caesar, should be as long as all the other months, and so stole a day from February to make up for it. The Pax Romana, or Roman peace, fostered generations of traders, soldiers, lawyers, moneylenders and craftsmen from across the continent in a largely peaceful trade. Of course, the calendar was one of the few genuine technological inventions the Romans pioneered. It spread wherever Romans did. While many of the natives in the Roman colonies, including Britain, still used their own calendars, the Roman calendar still spread and started to permeate into what the natives were using. Rome, 300 years later, and the great ruler of Constantine, now a Christian, introduced Sunday as a holy day in a now seven-day week. He officially recognised Christianity and Christmas in the calendar. He also hitched Easter to the Jewish lunar calendar, as he thought this was the best way to commemorate Jesus' death, not just using the new lunar solar calendar. The argument of the date of Easter was one of the primary reasons for the calling of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Constantine's seven-day calendar was already gaining popularity with the Romans before it was official. The seven days of the week represented the number of planets and moons people thought was in the skies, as astrology was gaining significance in the Roman population. In Britain, the seven-day week didn't enter society until the Anglo-Saxons of the 5th century brought it with them. 
a fascination with the planets had hit Rome in its early empire period, and the relation of the seven known celestial bodies and the seven days of the week started to coalesce. Sunday is named after the sun. Monday comes from the moon. Tuesday comes from the Anglo-Saxon from Mars, Tew. Wednesday comes from Mercury, called Woden in Anglo-Saxon. Thursday from Jupiter, or Thor in Anglo-Saxon. Friday comes from Venus, or Freya in Anglo-Saxon. While Saturday comes from the name Saturn. The fall of Rome, or perhaps more accurately described as a slow and gradual decline following the central plains of Europe reaching its population breaking point and needing more space and beginning to migrate. This broke the Western Roman Empire, but curiously kept and strengthened the Catholic Church. The switch of political power away from Rome, and well, just to somewhere else in Rome, namely the old St. Peter's Basilica, marked a great change in political order. The Catholic Church never had the military to compete with Rome's, and so its influence and power must have come from the priests, by keeping strict control over thought. Control of the rights in Europe to make calendar reforms moved from one area of the Eternal City to another. Without military power to enforce its rulings, the Catholic Church was helpless against large forces that went against its teachings. The dating of Easter and Christmas caused the ruction between the East and the West. Those that followed Rome's teachings and those that followed what was then the Alexandrian teachings of when Easter should be celebrated began to diverge. The liturgical problems over solving the issue caused some violence, especially in Britain. One Anglo-Saxon leader is reported to have killed 1,200 monks for daring to celebrate Easter on a different day to him. Literally, they celebrated it one day apart and got slaughtered for it. Humans will always find a reason to fight each other. Slowly, the calendar saw slow reform. Dionysus Exigus, 500-560 AD, contributed to the new calendar and his contribution is still with us today. As well as predicting the dates for the next 95 Easter's, he went backwards and filled in the Easter's before. At the time he was writing, they were dating using a system imposed by Diocletian, and Dionysus' letter was dated 247 Anno Diocletiani, the year of Diocletian. Diocletian was a noted persecutor of Christians, and so Dionysus thought it was best to change the AD from Anno Diocletiani to Anno Domini. Dionysus estimated the death of Christ to have been 531 years earlier, and so based Jesus' birth as AD 1, AD 0 being impossible, with the abstraction that 0 being a number in itself, having not yet come to Rome. Alas, all of his dates are wrong. Most sources estimate Jesus to have been born around 4 or 5 BC. But his system caught on. However, a slow diffusion of knowledge meant that it took years for this new dating system to catch on around Europe.
Interestingly, Coptic Christians in Egypt still use the original Anai Diocletiani. The great Frankish king, Charlemagne, was fascinated by timepieces. Legend has it he had a 12-hour sandglass timer, and I'm just wondering how big that must have been. Surely large enough to need several men to turn it over when it ran out. Charlemagne was one of the first to formalise into law the Anno Domini dating system. During Charlemagne's reign, saints days began to be called birthday, a tradition dating all the way back from pagan Rome, when the people of the day celebrated the ruler's birthday. These saints' birthdays commemorated the hacking down, burning, crucifixion and drownings of the Christian martyrs in the centuries before. These saint days became as important, and perhaps a little more important, than the months in Caesar's calendar, as people ruled their lives by what they did on or around saints days rather than the months. Monks' times in abbeys would be spent copying calendars of saints days and writing up the lives of different saints. Moving away from the West, what has the rest of the world been up to by this point? because it's quite important for the story of the calendar. Indian mathematics have a reputation longer than most civilizations. The Aryan Hindus, the ancestors of the Hindu religion, began a process of mathematical learning going back to 600 BC. Divying up the new lands these Aryan Hindus had conquered from the Harappa people, the Aryan Hindus or Indians, as we might want to start calling them, discovered geometry, and then they started looking at the stars. Their golden age intensified after the Gupta dynasty seized more land, and more mathematical insights started to follow, like pi, trigonometry, and the motion of the planets all started to be investigated. Ariahapta, 476-550 AD, introduced himself to the Indian mathematical world. Gupta India was hardly rich, but it had a prosperous middle class, which traded freely with Rome. In the imperial capital, and I'm going to try and pronounce this in what I'm sure is a long line of English people mispronouncing Indian place names, Kusmapara. It extended 12 miles along the Ganges, and it was as diverse as a place could be. Arapapta was a hoarder of all things mathematical, and he compiled it into the Arihapita, his magnum opus. In this, he estimates the solar year to be 365 days, 0.3586805, which improved the accuracy of the contemporary Indian calendar by 2 hours and 47 minutes. It was basically just seconds off the real time. He accurately estimated the diameter of the Earth, and even provided an underlying theory for the Earth revolving around the Sun. The developments of Indian learning were no doubt the product of a great civilization, but they were helped to some extent with an influx of Greek learning that happened during Alexander's invasion attempts. Indian mathematical knowledge absorbed the Greek knowledge, and perhaps became even better. This knowledge was then transferred to the next great civilization, 
the Arabs, who were amazed by these great Indian texts. The Indians had gone to meet Caliph al-Mansur in 711 to try and solve disputes and impress the Arabs with their own knowledge. It worked, and these Indian texts were ordered to be translated into Arabic, while a translated version was published in Latin in 1126, helping to reinvigorate mathematics and science learning in Europe. The Arab mathematicians were great at formalising and ordering. One of the first reasons they used this new ordering and formalising was to work out the most precise calendar for the newly resplendent Middle East. Perhaps the greatest Arab mathematician, scholar and astronomer was Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khuzami, who helped to accumulate stores of knowledge from India, Greece and Persia to help form his own invention or discovery, modern algebra. Most importantly was al-Khuzami's work on numbers which he started to work on when picking up an Indian treatise from Baghdad. The numeral systems of the Indians was listed inside this treatise with nine symbols and a placeholder. These are the nine numbers and the zero. Later Arab scholars worked on the number system to try and replace the Greek system, which was much more like the Roman numeral system you are all probably familiar with. The idea of a placeholder in Indian numbers and its use as a number was unlike anything anybody had seen before. It was most likely just a logical leap that led to this moment. The Indian scholars were worrying about the abstraction of having the concept of a number that represented nothing. But of course, the greater use of the numerical abstraction of the number zero was the correct logical leap to make making mathematics deeper and giving it more complexity. The Arabs also continued the Indian style number placement and went one step beyond by adding decimal places. By the classical Islamic era in the 14th and 15th centuries, the measurement of the year was now just 25 seconds longer than what we currently measure it as. Yet the Arabs never really wanted a true calendar. They wanted their calendar to be reflected in the religiously inspired lunar calendar. Much of this Arab learning came to Europe, either through conquest as in Spain, or through the process of translation and trade. The infusion of knowledge was slow. Independent thinkers waited upon each translated manuscript but most relied on the knowledge of the Middle Ages and didn't care much for this new Arab knowledge. This brings us back to where we started, Roger Bacon in the mid-1200s. Bacon was an empiricist who relied only upon evidence and not hearsay. He was all about testing. He believed that testing the proof of God would bring more people towards God. He argued the failure to understand the natural world was an embarrassment to Christians who should be trying to prove themselves superior to Arabic science. Bacon's reasoning for wanting to improve the calendar was that he believed the Antichrist was about to arrive 
and so people needed science to perfect a Christian way of life. Anyway, Bacon, through arguing that following natural time more naturally was essential to follow God's law, started to argue for a new calendar. As we saw at the start of the episode, Bacon could have been the one who instituted the needed reforms to stop the calendar drifting, but this was rejected. This situation lasted decades. But as we saw with Clement IV, popes can come and go suddenly, and this can see a great shift in the church. Fortunately, this could go both ways. And when the newly installed pope at Avignon, Clement VI, 1291-1352, abruptly changed course and wanted to now look at calendar reform. An extravagant pope, he sent for the greatest mathematical minds to reform the calendar. It was the natural philosopher Jean de Meurs who was the one to caution the pope against radicalism. Removing the days from calendar, he said, might cause riots. A new calendar could have come here too. As the slowly moving Catholic Church began to consider calendar reform, it could have been implemented at any point, but they had more pressing matters. A calendar reform was due to change in 1349, but then, around 1347, two Genoese trading ships came from the Crimea with rats on board. The disease from these rats spread to the sailors, causing great black boils and botches. The bubonic plague spread like wildfire, almost certainly spread from fleas on rats to humans. People could go from healthy overnight to dead. This obvious crisis caused devastation and a lack of will to carry on with calendar reforms when there were so many more important things to worry about. The result of the pandemic led to the closest thing to an inquiry in the medieval times where French King Philip VI asked the medical faculty at the University of Paris for an explanation. They turned to the stars, saying it was caused by the triple conjunction of the 20th of March 1345, which was a bad omen. Much like 2020, the start of the plague shut people in their homes. However, a new invention was also hitting around this time, the clock. From an unknown provenance in Europe, sometime after 1300, the mechanical clock continued the mechanisation of other areas of life. And it meant something important. Time became more commonly known across Europe. The use of the clock meant that time itself became more measurable to all, and a fixed concept in the minds of all. In 1453, Byzantium fell, and a reordering of Europe began to take place, as the Greek scholars there fled to Rome. At the same time, the church began to finally sort itself out after the messy medieval period. The church put liturgical esotericism behind, and looked towards an increasingly less religious Europe as questions began to be asked that could no longer be battered away purely on the say of the Catholic Church.
Pope Julius II brought together the Fifth Lateran Council, where he didn't call for reform, but questions began to be asked about the proper dates for the equinox, and the Easter debate began to rise again. When Julius died, his successor, Leo X, set up a commission. The commission was headed up by the Dutch monk cum scholar Paul de Middelburg, who drew up a list of problems with the current calendar and issued a letter. But the Pope couldn't get any traction from the European monarchs for the reforms in this letter. Perhaps a demonstration of the weakening grip of the power the Catholic Church now had. When the Reformation hit Europe, that too led to the Church's mind going elsewhere. But one astronomer jumped on the letter. Nicholas Copernicus was in his early 40s when he got this letter. During these years, Copernicus was working on taking astronomical observations. Copernicus worked out, based on fresh calculations, but also Arab and Greek ones, that there were two different types of years. The year through the seasons, sometimes called the seasonal years or the tropical year, measured by the length of time of the vernal equinoxes, when the moment the sun is directly overhead of the equator. The other year is the star year, sometimes called the sidereal year, which is the year if you measure how long it takes to move around the sun. The difference in the two measures was about 20 minutes, which of course matters over a long time period. Copernicus didn't know this, and couldn't explain why the Greek and Arab mathematicians were both right and wrong at the same time. Copernicus concluded it was just an irregular motion of the Earth, and therefore concluded the tropical year was 365.24 days. The reason for this wasn't explained until Newton argued that the gravitational pull upon the Earth and the Moon, and the fact that the Earth wasn't a perfect sphere, caused the Earth's axis to wobble somewhat. Yet still, Copernicus estimated, or measured, a remarkably accurate time for the tropical year. He held out on publishing his work, of course, because it contained his heliocentric model that might upset the Catholic Church. He published it shortly before his death, dedicating it to Pope Paul III, acknowledging his views were controversial, but asking the church to stand behind the science. His work was largely accepted, though very few could understand it, so most relied on the preface and took it as fact. Some, of course, were violently against the teachings, but most were indifferent, including the Catholic Church, who only when Galileo expressed an interest in the heliocentric model did they actually care. Galileo made such a fuss the Catholic Church set up an inquisition into him in 1613. The qualifiers of the Holy Office concluded, however, Copernicus's theory was a foolish one. But this was one of the last acts of Christendom, as, like a veil slowly being lifted, people saw the scientific inaccuracies riddled in the Church's teachings. You can't hold back the truth forever. As the Catholic Church was debating the very nature of the sun and the earth, amateur astronomers around Europe were already using Copernicus's measurements and theories to study the planets. The Julian calendar was basically the same as the one Caesar had launched 
1,650 years or so. Pope Gregory XIII was a vain pope, capable of spending vast sums on pomp and circumstance, and he nearly broke the Vatican treasury through fighting wars and building huge projects. We've seen before how these egotistical leaders can at times be useful. It becomes more about the ego than anything else. And if everybody tells you how great you'll be for getting something past, you'll see yourself as a hero. Gregory today is only remembered for his feat of calendar reform, but he is no Caesar. He did reform the church to allow it to be less dogmatic and promoted more genuinely educated men back into the Catholic Church. Rome needed this. It was now the slowly fading Eternal City, with its commercial, political and intellectual life being slowly drained away, most having moved to places like Florence under the Medicis. The slow change with just the pressure from these newly educated men coming into Rome and arguing for new ways of doing things caused the Catholic Church to change. Of course, the Catholic Church didn't want to change, and these traditionalists held out. But the issues never went away. Promises of only mild reform to just match the true date, rather than any broader notion of changing science, seemed to win out at the start. But matching the length of calendar years to its true year was made difficult by the differing notions of what a year was. Was a year how long it takes for the Earth to go around the Sun, or how long between the equinoxes and solstices. By using the solar calendar or tropical year, that is measuring the calendar more precisely from season to season, using the dates of the solstice and equinoxes to measure for the four seasons of the year, and by readjusting the calendar to the new knowledge about the precision of the tropical year, the new calendar promoted by these new men of Rome ran only 26 seconds slower than our current true year. Once things started to get in motion, it started to come quite quickly. But then the main administrative problem hit. It wasn't just a political problem. The problem was how to move from an incorrect calendar to a better one. To correct a calendar, you have to move dates for everybody en masse. But when you start moving around, you start to annoy a great many people, who rely on the current calendar for a load of reasons. Issues like the position of Easter would need to be formalised again, the issue having not died away over the past few centuries. Then you have to account for the fact that the Julian calendar also ran on a metonic cycle, so every 19 years the solar and lunar calendars were brought back into sync making it a true lunar-solar calendar. This was vital to keep Easter more or less in the same place each and every year. How do you get the lunar calendar, which is 354 days, into the Gregorian calendar of 365 days? Well, through maths. 8 times 354 was around equal to 2,500 years and a number that can be divided into 7 periods of 300 plus 1 period of 400 years. These solutions and more were published and issued across Europe. Some comments were wildly popular, with some wanting more reform to make the calendar match up 
with more phenomena, like a calendar correction of 21 days, which could land the winter solstice on the 1st of January, and changing the length of the months to coincide with the 12 signs of the zodiac. The positivity around the issuance of a new proposed calendar quickly turned to negative from scientists who wanted more reform. One result was the Scalia calendar, published separately by Joseph Scalia, who wanted to create an accurate dating system based on the rules of astronomy. It was this calendar that established chronology as a science, leading to new methods of dating astronomical phenomena. On the 14th of September 1580, the commission set up by Pope Gregory, signed its official report. Gregory supported the plan, with the implementation date to be October 1581, but a delay caused it to be 1582. On March 1st, 1582, the papal bull was posted on the doors of St. Peter's, the Chancellery of Rome, and other locations around the city. The bull was posted with a copy of the new calendar. On October the 4th, 1582, the calendar jumped forward 10 days, and some, especially the peasants, thought 10 days of their lives had been lost. Mobs rioted in Frankfurt against the Pope and the mathematicians. More real concerns were quickly raised against the Pope, and these people were the ones that even Popes needed to listen to, tax collectors. They worried about taxes being delayed, and how to calculate interest and other such things for a shortened month. Most of Northern Europe no longer really listened to the Church and the Pope, so it was only the staunch Catholic countries like Portugal, Italy and Spain who instantly changed their calendars. Spanish-controlled Benelux changed the calendar on the 21st of December, meaning they skipped Christmas entirely for that year. The Pope issued further reminders to countries ordering them to shift their calendars. 100 years before, it would have been instantaneous across Europe. But Europe had changed. Protestants in Europe rejected the reform, but by 1700, attitudes had changed, especially those in the southern states of Germany. Their position in the centre of Europe meant many had to constantly deal with the two calendars. It took until Frederick the Great of Prussia in 1775 to finally reform the calendar in Germany for it to match the Gregorian one. The Eastern Orthodox Church rejected the reform, as you might expect. The Eastern Church remained resistant to the papal calendar until 1923. How most ordinary people felt about the change, however, is difficult to gauge as newspapers and the like didn't really exist. For most, it probably made little difference in their lives, living in rural communes and villages as most people still did. It was in England where this new calendar caused perhaps the oddest reaction. It was still a small country at only three or four million people and ruled by a Protestant queen. But when this papal bull came, Elizabeth didn't dismiss it outright. Despite being faced by Catholics on all sides, she asked advisor John Dee to study and comment on the reforms. Dee took his reforms seriously and penned a long and passionate treatise in supporting the reform. 
Dee was no Catholic either, and wanted to make a few changes of his own. Other experts, like Sir Henry Savile, supported the plan, but they needed one other person's approval. The Archbishop of Canterbury was not a huge fan of the Queen, and he rejected the new calendar, calling it a reform of the Antichrist. When the matter was introduced to Parliament to give the Queen the authority to change the calendar, the issue was soon dropped. Britain was one of the last in Europe to change to the new calendar, much like their adoption of the metric system. Two attempted reforms of the calendar in 1645 and 1699 failed. Brits, however, ignored their government and slowly started to date letters in both the old style and the new style. They seemed to take pride in being able to use both systems, much like in Britain today, which still has the imperial metric debate. It was only when the luminaries at the Royal Observatory convinced the Whig Party then the party of the intellects and the merchants, to adopt it as a policy idea. Philip Stanhope was a recently retired Secretary of State, who introduced the calendar to Thomas Pelham, who wasn't so keen on the idea. Pelham, a future Prime Minister, however, changed his mind after something of a propaganda campaign by Stanhope persuaded him, and in 1751, the reform was introduced into Parliament. Parliament went through pains to explain the rules to everybody, stating it would affect all those who dealt with the state. Expunging 11 days from the calendar was not seen as the problem, however, but more how to pay a monthly service for a month with only three weeks. The Church of England became a supporter, proclaiming, quote, the new style, the true style, close quote, to convince the ordinary people in their parishes of the inherent patriotism to support this new system. They even argued Roger Bacon, an Englishman, was the first to argue for this type of reform. This was perhaps needed from the church, as riots quickly broke out over England, with people demanding their 11 days back. A chant went around, quote, In 1753, the style it was changed to popery, close quotes. In Bristol, the riots caused deaths, while, most intriguingly, the bankers refused to at first comply and didn't pay their taxes on the usual date of the 25th of March, 1753, paying it 11 days later, anyway, on what is now the 5th of April, which is still tax day in the UK. I've said it before, but bankers do what they want. Sweden was the last country in Western Europe to change. While the East changed over in the early 20th century, following the collapse of Tsarist orthodoxy. Greece reformed in 1924, Japan in 1873 as it westernised, and China, as we saw at the start of the episode, in 1949. They tried in 1912, but it was only Chairman Mao who could enforce the new calendar. Launched in modern form 2,000 years ago by Caesar, and reformed by a Pope known for almost nothing else, the modern Gregorian calendar stands as an achievement of man of the very highest order, but one we take for granted when we perhaps shouldn't. Now we live on atomic time, making the measurement of time and the calendar the very peak of human scientific achievement. 
Atomic clocks are timed to microseconds all over the world to measure time. Atomic time means that humans have effectively fulfilled the requirement to tell time and to use calendars to predict future dates as accurately as possible. We can see how important calendars have been throughout history and we should be under no illusion that we would notice if it didn't work a lot more. I chose not to include this in the last episode, but I feel calendars are important enough to warrant their own episode. I just want to remind you to check out my new other podcast, The Monetary Revolution. And a little note to end saying that I, over the next few months, will be dedicating some time to record some of the earlier episodes. So the next main episode might be delayed a little more, but hopefully not for long. Thanks for listening. Thank you.